Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, if you're anything like me, you find it difficult to stay focused among so many distractions. This is precisely why we created Focus Plus, an innovative nootropic supplement that delivers sustained and focused energy without the crash. It's made with clinically researched botanicals and bioactives with sustained release technology. So it gives you jitter-free energy that lasts all day so you can stay on task and get stuff done. I love this product as it's helped me consume a lot less coffee. So please give it a try. Visit shop.mindbodygreen.com and use code FOCUSPOD at checkout to enjoy 20% off your first order. Enjoy the show. What if I told you that a nutritional psychiatrist does not actually recommend brain foods or that she thinks we can do better than the Mediterranean diet for brain health? Dr. Georgia Ede is here to dissect all the buzzy brain topics from her new book, Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind. We talk about anti-nutrients, why antioxidants aren't the answer, all the sneaky foods that rob your brain of energy, and so much more. Georgia is a Harvard-trained nutritional psychiatrist with over 25 years in the field, and she is full of hot takes with the science to back them up. Trust me, you don't want to miss this one. So what are the biggest misconceptions people have about quote-unquote brain foods? Well, uh, I think a lot of people think about brain food, like eating for their brain, as adding specific things to their diet that are going to bolster their brain health and protect their brain uh, from things like depression and dementia. And we think of certain superfoods and supplements as being really important for brain health. So, you know, things like, you know, eating more berries or dark chocolate or red wine, uh, those kinds of things. And not only do those strategies not work, but they actually can work against people because for two reasons. One is because they aren't effective, but, but worse than that, it's one thing to do something that's not effective. But the real problem, I think, with the superfood strategy is that it distracts people from what's actually important about brain food. The, the things that you can do to improve your brain health have nothing to do really or very little to do with adding special things to the diet. They really have to do with subtracting the things from the diet that are working against your brain in the first place. That's a really powerful strategy. And now, of course, it's it's not as easy as adding things. And it's it doesn't feel as empowering or as positive as subtraction. You know, subtraction feels depriving and negative and difficult, but it is so much more effective. So I think that's uh, one of the problems that I, I want to make sure people people learn a little bit more about. Just to be clear on this, because a lot of people are going to be upset that you mentioned berries, dark chocolate, and wine. We can still have those things. They're still good, but we just can't eat a standard American diet and expect the addition of those things make everything okay. They're still good, but we need to subtract things, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, uh, uh, for the most part. So so we'll kind of take these three different examples because they are quite different from each other. So berries, for example, there, there's really nothing wrong with having berries in the diet. Uh, they are, you know, un- unless you're sensitive berries or uh, have to keep your carbohydrate intake very, very low and can't have too many berries. But for the most part, 
berries are fine and they're delicious. Uh, they're, they're, they're safe. I would, however, uh, caution people against over consuming dark chocolate because there is the quite a bit of sugar in dark chocolate. So we do need to be careful about sugar intake. And so I would say berries, I'd give a green light. I'd say chocolate, I'd give a yellow light. <laughs> be careful with over consuming chocolate. With red wine, I really would give a red light here. As a psychiatrist who's focusing on optimizing brain health, I really can't recommend red wine uh, as a part of a healthy diet. It doesn't mean you can't include some, but it means that we, we can't put it in the same category as something that may have potential benefits or even be completely benign because it does have risks. So, and, and each person's risk is different. You need to know, you know, where you stand in terms of your ability to safely consume, you know, moderate amounts of, of red wine. Well, also, you know, the subtitle of your book, you're talking about overcoming anxiety. And, and I am, I believe in moderation with alcohol and, and it's all about setting and context. Are you enjoying alcohol in moderation with friends or are you enjoying moderation alcohol by yourself? I think there's a big difference, but I've never heard to build off of your point, any medical professional who's, who's in the nutritional psychiatry field prescribe alcohol for overcoming anxiety. You know, we, we know, whereas, you know, berries, potentially some more, uh, you know, meats, fish like that. I hear a lot, but I hear you on the alcohol. And so what are some of the things coming back to your larger point, we should be removing I think the most important thing for people to remove is the ultra-processed foods and, and the signature ingredients of the ultra-processed foods are the refined carbohydrates and the refined vegetable oils, the, so the, seed, the seed oils or refined vegetable oils. So, um, you know, things like soybean oil and canola oil and so forth. So if you, if all you do is that, and I, and it is very difficult to do because these, these ingredients are in just about every prepared and processed food on the market, if all you do is that, you are going to experience tremendous health benefits because those two ingredients, refined carbohydrates and seed oils, are really powerful promoters of inflammation and oxidative stress. And even in the case of refined carbohydrates, insulin resistance, which, which robs the brain of energy. So these are some of the root causes, the really powerful contributing causes of mental health concerns in the first place. So removing those is the most important thing you can do. So I think many people are coming around to the idea of removing ultra-processed foods and seed oils, I think, is picking up steam. Something else, which you mentioned in the book, that's linked to oxidative stress, which I still think we're early on, linoleic acid. Mm. Can you touch on that one? What What is it? Why is it problematic? Where is it? What quantities are safe? Because it's kind of everywhere. You're absolutely right. So um, linoleic acid is a very fragile omega-6 fatty acid. So there are omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6 fatty acids. These are long chain fatty acids. They're very different from most of the fats that are in the diet. Anyway, this it's a very fragile omega-6 fatty acid. And it's found in small quantities uh, in both uh, plant and animal foods, whole plant and animal foods, very small quantities. You have more of it in nuts and seeds, but uh, you'll also find it in animal foods. So it's naturally present in small amounts in nature. 
And we, so therefore we did evolve to consume small amounts of it. The problem, of course, is that over the past hundred years or so, we've developed the technology to extract the oils from seeds, sunflower seeds and uh, cotton seeds and uh, canola seeds, uh, all, all these different uh, soybeans, uh, which are also seeds of a certain type, and concentrate them and put them into bottles. And, and, and then they, they show up in mayonnaise and salad dressings and dairy-free baked goods, you know, things like that. So they're now, and we fry potato chips in them, you know, they're really everywhere. So now a huge percentage of our diet is vegetable oil. And the, and the, and the vegetable oils are very high, many of them, in linoleic acid. And the problem with linoleic acid is that it is very fragile and it, it's very susceptible to what's called oxidative stress. So it kind of, it, you can think of it almost as going rancid in the body very quickly. And then that sets off a chain reaction of oxidation of other molecules that are nearby. So you, so you get a lot, a lot of toxic byproducts. So we are designed to see small amounts. We're not designed to be pouring concentrated linoleic acid uh, it, you know, into our bodies three, four, five, six times a day. And the problem with that is that, A, our fat cells really aren't designed to store linoleic acid in, in large quantities. And B, our brain doesn't really know what to do with linoleic acid when it sees it. So we end up, uh, when we'll talk about the brain in particular because I'm a psychiatrist, and you're right, the science is very, very early on this, is that Linoleic acid does cross the brain just as easily as any other polyunsaturated fatty acid uh, does. But then once it gets into the brain, it seems that the vast majority of it is burned for energy. And that's really not what the brain is supposed to be doing. The brain is not supposed to be burning fatty acids for energy. The brain is designed to burn small molecules like glucose and ketones for energy. When it burns linoleic acid or other fatty acids for energy, it, there's much more oxidative stress and inflammation, very damaging to the brain. So, and again, oxidative stress and inflammation, these are some of the root, uh, some of the very, you know, very powerful contributing forces uh, to damaging forces underlying mental health conditions. We really want to minimize that as much as we can. So it's not necessarily the linoleic acid showing up in nuts, you know, I'm having uh, cashews or walnuts or peanuts or, 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 or any of those nuts and nut butter form. Exactly. It's the linoleic acid in high concentration coming back to the seed oil, which is problematic. So like the memo to people here is don't worry about linoleic acid as it shows up naturally in the foods we're consuming. It's the seed oils again. Absolutely. And that's why whole foods principles apply here. We don't want to worry about the naturally occurring fats in plant or animal foods. We want to worry about the unnaturally refined and concentrated. Uh, the same goes for carbohydrates too. We don't, we, there's no need necessarily to avoid carbohydrates in whole foods unless you have damage to your metabolism. You want to avoid the, the ultra refined concentrated carbohydrates and oils, which do not naturally exist in nature. So you're a psychiatrist. Your book is about changing your diet and changing your mind. And you, you touched on ketones. And you did a, a study in, I believe, 2022 on the ketogenic diet for serious mental illness. Can you share what you did there? And Yes. Thank you for asking about that study. Uh, that was the work of my friend and colleague, Dr. Albert Dana. He's a psychiatrist in Toulouse, France, 
who's been practicing psychiatry uh, for more than 35 years, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he, he really specializes in chronic mental illness and many of the patients that he's worked with, he's worked with in many cases for decades. So he became interested in the ketogenic diet after witnessing a family member of his improve on a ketogenic diet and with respect to autism symptoms and, and epilepsy symptoms within just a matter of weeks. And so he thought to himself, this diet seems to be good for the brain. You know, I wonder if this diet could help so many of my patients who are not responding to all of the interventions that I have been using to try to help them. Uh, medication, psychotherapy, uh, you know, repeated hospitalizations. And so he invited 31 of his most treatment-resistant patients to volunteer to come into the hospital and try a ketogenic diet, a whole foods, very mildly ketogenic diet in the hospital under his supervision to see whether or not it would, would make any difference. And so 31 folks, and these were uh, people with severe chronic treatment-resistant uh, bipolar disorder schizophrenia, and major depression. And these were folks uh, on average taking five psychiatric medications, not at all uncommon, and who had been ill in many cases for many, many years, on average about 10 years in treatment. And what he observed was really so remarkable that we decided to publish this together with the help of uh, Dr. Eric Westman and Dr. Laura Soslow as well. We, we analyzed his work and published it last year. And what he observed was that of the 28 people who were able to stay on the diet for more than two weeks. So that's 28 out of 31. That's pretty darn good. 28 out of 31. That's really good. Exactly. Only three of them stopped the diet. And there were no serious side effects. People tolerated the diet well. 28 people stayed on the diet. And within three weeks of starting the diet, everyone had improved, both psychiatrically and metabolically. And, and to the point that 44% of those patients achieved clinical remission from their so-called treatment-resistant, chronic, serious mental illness. Just unprecedented. Wow. Unbelievable, right? And so what this tells us is that there is hope. I mean, there are so many people out there who have, think they've tried everything, and this is regardless of diagnosis, regardless of duration of treatment, regardless of length of the illness, regardless of the medications they were taking, which types or how many, all of them improved. And not just a little bit. We're talking seven to 10 times more robust improvement compared to medication studies for depression and psychotic symptoms. Wow. So I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I, I want to say, maybe you know them, that SSRIs have like a 40% effective, 40, is it around that ballpark, right? Being effective. And I, is that fairly accurate? Yeah. It com compared to placebo, about 10% better than placebo. Look, I, I always want to let people know like SSRIs can also save people's lives and I'm not against medication, but I think Given you're talking about a flip of a coin, one out of two, what I think is really challenging here with SSRIs specifically is when people go on them and it doesn't work, they can quickly go to a really 
even worse place because then you start to lose hope because most people aren't aware that they're not as effective as popular culture tends to think. And so if you're looking at a diet intervention, which is just as effective, and it's, look, we believe in lifestyle modification first, you at least don't lose hope. Hey, I'll try this keto thing. I'll, I'll get to, you know, have a lot more fat and see how it goes. And if it doesn't work, you know, I'll try something else or maybe I'll try medication. Whereas if you go to the medication, I could see for someone who's already dealing with anxiety and depression and serious psychiatric, you know, illness, it quickly goes to a dark place where there's no hope for me. What's your take on that? Exactly, Jason. I'm so glad that you framed it that way because I practiced psychiatry for 25 years. For the first 10 years, I used medication and psychotherapy exclusively, like all, most psychiatrists do. And I still use medications and psychotherapy in my work, even to this day, even in my nutrition and metabolic practice. So there is a place for medications. Medications can be helpful for some people. And the people who are helped by them know who they are. <laughs> um, if they don't work for you, though, I don't want you to lose hope. And if they've only helped you a little bit and you need more support, you can combine these dietary strategies, ketogenic diets and other dietary strategies. There, I recommend a variety of different uh, options for you to try in the book, not just keto. You can combine dietary strategies with medication. And there's no reason why you have to choose one or the other. But I, I, I think it's really important for people to know that these dietary interventions, in my experience as a clinical and in my clinical work, and also in, in the hands of Dr. Dana in France, these seem to work better for a lot of people um, than medications often do. And so it, it's really a powerful intervention. So what does this say about the ketogenic diet. What is so good about the diet here? Is it the protein? Is it the fat? Or is it that it's correcting for metabolic syndrome or something? Like, is it the driver of what's driving these conditions? Or is it the diet? Like, walk us through, like, how, 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 how should this reframe how we think about our brain and mental health and the ketogenic diet? And what what's the problem? And what's the solution here? Great. Thank you for, for asking that question. That's the million dollar question. What is it about the ketogenic diet that makes it such a powerful intervention? And really, it's less about what's in the diet and more about how the body responds to the diet, meaning that there are lots of different ways you can construct a ketogenic diet. But the main purpose of a ketogenic diet, regardless of how many plants or animals are in it, or even how much fat is in it, or how much protein the goal of a ketogenic diet is to lower insulin levels. So any way of eating that lowers insulin levels and puts you into ketosis is ketogenic. And this includes fasting and calorie restriction, not just high fat diets. So when you lower your insulin levels, what happens is you turn fat burning on and your body starts to use less carbohydrate for energy and more fat for energy, whether that fat comes from your food or from excess body fat. And when you start vigorously burning fat, the liver turns some of that fat, breaks some of that fat down into ketones, which are these very short pieces of fat. They're kind of pre-digested uh, fat molecules that can cross easily into the brain and supplement brain energy. And the reason why that is so important is because most of us, unfortunately, now have 
insulin resistance, which means our brains are not burning glucose properly anymore. We can't burn glucose to full capacity anymore. We can't use glucose well enough to, to fully fuel our brains. So we need a supplemental fuel source. And ketones are absolutely the perfect supplemental fuel source for the brain. So on that note, did these specific subjects in the study, were there any commonalities in their lab work? Did they all have high insulin? Like what I'm trying to glean here is how does one understand that this diet may be effective? And if you're saying insulin's a driver here, because people are asking, you know what, I have anxiety, like, let's give this a shot. Like, is there is there a way to look at someone's lab results and look like, okay, this is high, this is low, you're actually a good a good candidate? Or is it everyone who struggles? Like, I, I what is the, so I'll pause there. I know it's all throwing a lot at you. Sure. No, this is great. It's exactly the right question to ask. So we don't yet know which people are going to be be the best candidates for a ketogenic diet. However, a couple of things to, to, to know that are helpful. One is that all of the patients in Dr. Danan's study had at least one marker of poor metabolic function, meaning they had high blood sugar, or they were overweight, or they uh, had high triglycerides or high blood pressure, you know, things that are very commonly uh, called these are pieces of what are what are called metabolic syndrome, right? So metabolic dysfunction. Ninety two percent of America now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. the The vast majority of us now have at least one marker of metabolic dysfunction. Uh, just as you said, everyone can benefit <laughs> from lowering their insulin levels, right? So that's a good thing. But the other thing to say is that so in our in my clinical work, I certainly work with patients who don't have any markers of metabolic dysfunction. I work with people who are very physically fit in some cases, who are you know lean and and appear by all and for all intents and purposes to be quite healthy. We, you measure their lab tests; everything looks fine. Some of them also benefit from a ketogenic diet, and that's we don't understand exactly why why some people respond. Uh, uh, you know, we we can't say for sure why it is that these people are responding, but we do know that the ketogenic diet has more than one benefit. So yes, it supplements brain energy, but it also lowers glucose levels. And if you're getting glucose spikes in your blood after you're eating, if you're eating too many refined carbohydrates, say for example, and your glucose is going up after every meal before it comes back down, going up too high, every time you're getting a glucose spike in your bloodstream, you're also getting one in your brain. And those glucose spikes create damaging waves of inflammation and oxidative stress. So when you lower your glucose levels through a ketogenic diet, you're reducing that, uh, those waves of, you have less inflammation in the brain and less oxidative stress. So, and there are many other things that happen too. So neurotransmitters rebalance, et cetera. So multi-purpose tool. So you mentioned glucose spikes and you referenced a study in the book about how sugar impacted teenage boys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you share that? That was a good one. So parents out there of teenage boys. <laughs> so these are these are healthy by all intents and purposes healthy teenage boys were chosen for this study and they were given sugar sweetened cola or a sugar-free cola. And then they measured their adrenaline levels as a stress hormone. Uh followed their adrenaline levels after they had this the 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 two types of cola. 
And the boys who had had the sugar-sweetened cola, their adrenaline levels spiked to four to five times baseline four to five hours later. So it wasn't an immediate reaction. It was a delayed reaction, but a huge spike in adrenaline, the stress hormone. And, you know, and, and there, there were symptoms that came along with this for, 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 these, for these boys, you know, feeling shaky and uncomfortable and those sort of things. You know, people often will feel, you know, kind of anxious and hangry and irritable and, and uh, you know, between meals, uh, sometimes even feeling panicky and having panic attacks and feeling like they're hypoglycemic. In many cases, it's not because their blood sugar is dropping. It's because their adrenaline levels are spiking. And this is uh, really not a subtle effect. <laughs> this is a very, very powerful hormonal effect. Boys have enough trouble sitting still and paying attention anyway. And then you put them on sugary sweet soda. It's, it's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> that's an that's a excellent way of putting it. <laughs> so bringing it back to, to food and eating, something else I thought was so interesting was your take on the Mediterranean diet. You know, it's it's widely studied, I, I think, not really controversial, uh, embraced, I think, to some degree. Um, and I think most people would agree a lot healthier when compared to the standard American diet. But you point out it's got some flaws. Tell us more. So it does. And, and first of all, I agree with everything you just said. There's a lot of science to support the Mediterranean diet as being a healthier diet uh, a clearly healthier diet than the standard American diet. And why that is, is anybody's guess. There are lots of, lots of differences between the Mediterranean diet and the standard American diet. One of which jumps out at me is that it's a lot lower in ultra processed foods. And so, uh, so it, it, study after study has, has shown that it is, it is healthier for us. So if that's the change you can make, please make it. However, I think we can do better because the Mediterranean diet, just because it's better than the standard American diet for the brain and the rest of the body, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best diet for the brain. And there are many good reasons to believe that it's not in just a couple of examples, which I put in the book. So one is that the foundation of the Mediterranean diet is grains and legumes. And some of them are highly refined in the forms of breads and pasta. And so not only is that a huge carbohydrate load for people with insulin resistance, which again, the majority of us now have, uh, it's far too high in carbohydrate for the majority of us with insulin resistance. So that's thing number one. But thing number two is it sends a mixed message about refined carbohydrates. It really discourages certain types of refined carbohydrates like sugar, while explicitly encouraging others like flour. And they're really, the body really can't tell the difference between flour and sugar. So it sends a mixed message there. So too high in carbohydrate in general, but then also too high in refined carbohydrates, which I think um, are completely unnecessary and quite damaging. Another is that there is this explicit or implicit, depending on which study you look at, encouragement of, of alcohol, red wine in the diet as a healthy, as a healthy, a brain healthy practice and body healthy practice. There's absolutely no scientific evidence to support that and lots and lots of evidence against it. And the other problem with basing the diet on grains and legumes is that these are very nutrient-poor foods. They're, they're very low in nutrients and they're very high in anti-nutrients that interfere with our ability to nourish our brains. So 
I think we can do better than the, than the Mediterranean diet if we're looking for optimal brain health. I'll spend a moment on alcohol. My view on this is, and I'll build off what I said earlier, that it's, it's, it's context, it's setting. Are you drinking alcohol solo? Or are you enjoying alcohol with friends and celebrating? I view alcohol almost as like a, the Trojan horse for a social connection. And we, we know that social connection is incredibly powerful in terms of longevity. There's all sorts of, I'm like, we know coming out of the pandemic and loneliness and what that does to our well-being. And I know that's a stretch. I don't know if there's a study that will ever support that the alcohol 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 solo versus alcohol in a uh social setting but that is my take of the mediterranean diet these people are eating with their family and drinking with their family and friends and they're not sitting at home in the dark doom scrolling drinking by themselves I agree that it's context dependent and that um, alcohol can be uh, enjoyed uh, at, at at low levels uh, by people for whom it's not a problem. 100%. Right? I completely agree with you on that. I, I would say that if you don't drink, don't start. And if you don't like alcohol, like, you know, so, so like I'm not encouraging people to have, you know, I'll be clear, like four to five drinks. But if you enjoy a glass of wine with family and friends or beer or whatever it may be, have at it. Right. So you, it's context dependent and it's person dependent. So, and I, and I, I love what you said. If you don't drink now, don't start because uh, it really, there are no health benefits. There are no physical health benefits, only risks. So, but as a psychiatrist who has just written a book about optimizing brain health, really, I'm trying to reach people who are struggling, right? So if you have depression, insomnia, anxiety, attention problems, memory problems, and you're going to come to me, I'm not going to prescribe, <laughs> I'm not going to prescribe alcohol. 100%, 100%. So, and, and for this reason, alcohol is a powerful promoter of oxidative stress and inflammation, and it's also a, it's it's 100% guaranteed to disrupt your sleep quality. You will not sleep well for the second half of the night and it is very addictive for a lot of people. So and it can cause depression, anxiety, etc., withdrawal symptoms the next day, difficulty concentrating and very very poor sleep for the second half of the night. And of course it's it, it's quite addictive. So if you are struggling with your mental health, please at least look at the, the alcohol, the role of alcohol in your life, and give it a try. Give it a try 30 days uh, without alcohol to see how it affects you. And if you don't notice any problems for yourself, then you can make that informed choice, right? But what I don't want people to think is that red wine is a brain-healthy beverage. It's just not. <laughs> Agreed. I was just trying to make the the point about the, the importance of social connection and alcohol part of that and why it's potentially beneficial but we'll we'll move on so the larger point around anxiety how does one construct a diet around anxiety like are, are there you say there are no silver bullet superfoods what, what are some of the the top things if someone is taking inventory of their of their cabin their fridge they should remove immediately and what are some of the the top things they should add immediately yeah, so it's mostly again about removal, uh, subtraction. Uh, again, the refined carbohydrates should be a major focus for people with anxiety because 
of that hormonal roller coaster we were talking about before. So when you eat too many of the wrong carbohydrates too often, you will get an, an exaggerated glucose spike in the bloodstream and then an exaggerated insulin spike in the bloodstream to squirrel away that excess glucose into your cells. And there's that piece. Um, but then, as you were discussing before, um, there's a hormonal reaction to that pattern. So that goes beyond the glucose and insulin spike. And the reason for that is that you, know, you might think, well, okay, so glucose goes up, it goes up briefly, depending on who you are, it might go up for a few hours, it might go up for, it depends on, on your, meta your metabolism, but it eventually comes back down because insulin is there, insulin to the rescue, comes into the bloodstream, brings the glucose back down to normal. So why should that be a problem for anxiety? The problem is that insulin is not just a blood sugar regulator. It is a master growth hormone. So it is talking to all of the other hormones in the body, the stress hormones, the reproductive hormones, the blood pressure regulating hormones, the appetite hormones. All of those hormones are being put on a roller coaster along with your glucose and insulin levels. And that's why you see that adrenaline spike four to five hours later. The body is responding to insulin. Uh, just like I, I use the example in the book or, or the analogy in the book of musicians in an orchestra following an orchestra's baton. But the insulin is telling all of, all of your hormones what to do. So if you can get off that roller coaster by lowering your glucose and insulin levels, and the most powerful way you can do that, most effective way, step one, is get the refined carbohydrates out of your diet. Because those are the things that spike glucose and insulin the most. That might be all you need to do. You might not need to go to a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet. It depends on who you are. So we're removing the processed foods. And a quote I loved from you in the book is, the truth about brain food is that meat is not dangerous. Vegan diets are not healthier. And antioxidants are not the answer. Now, we touched on antioxidants, but we really haven't talked about meat. Let's talk about meat. Okay. So meat, you know, has been accused of causing every health problem one can imagine, you know, cancer, constipation, obesity, type 2 diabetes, gout, you name it, uh, high blood pressure. Uh, it is, it has really been, uh, it's really been vilified. But when you actually look at the science, there is no evidence that meat is bad for us. And I spent an entire chapter backing that up uh, and explaining to people uh, what the science actually does show about meat. And, and uh, I think it's, I, I hope uh, that, that when people read that chapter, uh, they will see that all of the arguments against meat are basically just paper tigers. There really is no evidence to support. And it wouldn't make any sense that it would be bad for you because this is a natural whole food that we've been eating since time immemorial. It wouldn't make any sense to blame modern health ep epidemics. I mean, these are diseases, you know, things like obesity and type 2 diabetes and heart disease were, were far less common even 100 years ago than they are now. So it wouldn't make any sense to blame an, uh, you know, a new, new disease epidemic or a new ep epidemic of diseases on an ancient food. So that's it. it, it, it and a very nutritious and safe, uh, easy to digest 
and highly nutritious food as well. So it really doesn't make any sense, but there's so much in the media and headlines and even built into our dietary guidelines telling us that meat is bad for us, that we have most of us come to believe it. And I think it's really, really important to, to, uh, to take those arguments down because a diet without any animal foods is a very dangerous diet, especially for pregnant women. Well, high quality meat is very nutrient dense. There's no argument there. I think what I would add is I would encourage everyone to do some basic lab work and getting understanding of, you know, are they better with leaner cuts of meat or, you know, is sat fat a problem? But I, I think that the underlying, I think, issue you're, you're touching on with a lot of science is cholesterol and the theory there of how we view cholesterol. I think there's now consensus that ApoB is the most important marker there, and it's not necessarily total cholesterol, but encouraging people to do some basic blood work. And whether it's a little meat or a lot of meat, meat's probably an important component of one's diet. It's really important. If, if Again, if you're looking for optimal brain health and optimal total health, what you really, you do need to include some animal foods in the diet. And I, I recommend non-dairy animal foods if you can manage that. Um, there's a chapter in the book about that. But the, but you know, it doesn't need to be, like you said, it doesn't need to be a lot of meat and it doesn't need to be red meat. It can be seafood. It can be shellfish. It can be poultry. It can be, uh, uh, for example, duck is a red meat that's not because it doesn't come from a mammal. Shellfish are very nutrient dense. So it doesn't, and, and eggs are a fantastic source of almost every nutrient we need. So it doesn't need to be red meat. And I think that's really important for people to know. Personally, I'm a big fan of smash. Salmon, mackerel, anchovies, sardines, and herring. Nutrient dense. I think there's consensus there. I don't know anyone in their right mind who says don't eat any of those foods. High in protein, fat, like nutrient dense. And a beautiful source of omega-3 fatty acids, the kinds that we can actually use, as opposed to the omega-3 fatty acids that are found in plants, which we, we have a very, very difficult time, if not impossible time, utilizing. I'm seeing a lot more from experts on anti-nutrients, like phytic acid, which can be found in some plants and, and nuts. And What's your take on quote-unquote anti-nutrients and how it potentially affects our ability to absorb certain nutrients, which are critical to our brain health? Yeah, so this is, you know, one of, one of the uh, little-known secrets about nutrition science is that just because a food contains a nutrient doesn't necessarily mean we can access it. And so if you look at the ingredient label on, you know, nuts or seeds or, or flour for that, you know, wheat, grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, if you look at the nutrient label, you may see minerals listed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can access them fully. And because of these anti-nutrients that exist in the seed foods, so there's a whole chapter in the book about how amazing seeds are and how, how clever they are in terms of guarding their nutrients for the future generations of the plant kingdom uh, makes it a lot different. They really go out of their way to uh, make it difficult for us to access those nutrients because they really are not there for us. They're there for the, for the baby plant when it's ready to sprout. So it can be much harder for us to access nutrients from plant foods. And I think you know, there are special ways you can, uh, that are tr traditional ways of processing seed foods, uh, things like legumes and, and grains and uh, 
to, to get more nutrients out of them. So, you know, things like cooking and sprouting and fermenting can reduce a lot of these, the anti-nutrient can offset a lot of those anti-nutrient benefits, uh, anti-nutrient risks and make the foods more nutritious. So, and that that's the thinking behind traditional uh, processing methods. Um, I just think it's important for people, especially people who choose to eat, to, who choose to get most of their protein from foods like um, nuts and legumes, just be aware, you know, be aware of these anti-nutrients and, and learn how to, how to try to work around them as best you can uh, so that you're getting all the nutrients you need. So what are some of the ones we should watch out for in terms of whole foods in the, in the nut category or seed category? We should be aware of the anti-nutrients and, and is there a certain amount where it becomes problematic? For example, if I have a handful of walnuts, or I'll use almonds, if I have a handful of almonds versus, you know, a quart of almonds, or I drink a quart of almond milk, like, is there, or is it all compromising our ability to absorb the nutrients? What's, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, of course, the quantity will matter. And uh, so there are a couple of couple of things to think about there. One is that if you are turning to those foods as, as your primary source of things like protein and minerals, and then the amount the, you're going to need a, a higher amount of those foods to meet your nutrient needs because of the anti-nutrient effect. But the other is that if you are eating a mixed diet that includes uh, some animal foods that, you know, um, uh, let's say for let's use iron as an example, or or zinc, iron and zinc, because iron and zinc you'll see those listed in in the seed foods, but it's very difficult for us to to get at the iron and 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 zinc in seed foods because of these anti nutrients, particularly phytic acid, but there are others as well. So if you're eating a mixed diet, so I give an example in the book of uh, this uh, lovely experiment that was done a long time ago. Um, of somebody eating oysters, like let's say that you eat a mixed diet that includes animal foods, and you're you're trying to get, and you're you're looking for zinc. Oysters are the food on earth that is highest in zinc, richest in zinc. So if you eat oysters by themselves, you will see a very nice rise in blood zinc levels after you eat the oysters, signifying that you have absorbed a, a lot of the zinc from those oysters. If you eat that same amount of oysters with black beans you absorb about half of the zinc from those oysters. And if you eat the same amount of oysters with corn tortillas, you absorb virtually none of the zinc from those oysters. So it's a very powerful effect. Wow. So let's food combining. Let's talk about that. Because I think many people do, you know, I'll have wild salmon with beans. So what happens? Am I losing? What am I losing in that salmon if I combine the two? Yes, yeah, so you are you are losing access to some to some of the iron and, and zinc. Uh, so phytic acid interferes with iron, zinc, calcium, and magnesium. Those are some big ones. Those are really big. They're really really important. All four of them. <laughs> phytic acid is what's problematic for absorption of those. I think four minerals you meant: iron, magnesium, zinc, and yes, those are the major minerals that get uh, interfered with by phytic acid. But there, are, you know, there are there are also um, other types of anti nutrients in the seed foods. You know, things like tannins uh, and that go beyond seed foods. So a lot of the seed foods contain tannins, which interfere with iron absorption. But tannins you can also find in tea and berries, uh, and and you know, so other a wide variety of plant foods contain tannins and other types of anti nutrients. So 
you know, we think of plant foods as teeming with vitamins and minerals, but and, and some of them are. Some of them do contain quite a few nutrients, but none of them is any match for an animal food for two reasons. One is they contain fewer nutrients to begin with, and second is they contain anti-nutrients, which animal foods do not, by and large, contain. My take is most people are, are omnivores, and they do a lot of food combining. You know, they're going to have their 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 animal or or seafood for their main protein source, and then they're going to have a side of something, whether it's beans or maybe not after the show. Or so I want to get a sense of, or they they make smoothies. And so I think my take, and I put myself in this camp, that there are a lot of healthy, smart people who think they're doing all the right things here and are potentially adding some of these foods that are rich in anti-nutrients that are doing a little bit of, there are unintended consequences, I'll leave it at that. So what are some of it, we touched on, like what are some of those foods that people are, uh, everyone get out their notepads that we should, because you know, that, that I'm putting in my smoothie or we got the memo on beans with a protein. If you're going to have beans, you almost separate it. Have, it, have it as a snack, like have it alone if you want beans. But if you combine it with a protein and that protein is your source of those four minerals, you got a problem. You're better off separating the meal. Like, let's talk about that. Great. Because I've had this problem that other people have too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what I do in the book is the final uh, quarter of the book is, uh, is practical suggestions about how to get more out of your diet how to you know, make any diet brain healthier regardless of your dietary preferences, right? So I like to say, you know, I'm nutritionally pro-choice. I just want you to have the right information before you make those choices, right? So I actually recommend in the book that everybody, unless, you're go unless you prefer a vegan diet, in which case, please do not do this. I recommend that everybody in the book think twice about including grains and legumes in their diet, period. And really, if you're eating some animal food, even if it's just eggs or shellfish, whatever it is, if you're eating some animal food, there's no need to include legumes in your diet and lots of reasons not to. And grains, they're, uh, grains are provide almost no nutritional benefits whatsoever. They're really just a source of carbohydrate. They're so nutrient poor that uh, there really is no reason to eat grains even even for vegans to consume grains. So if you're looking for protein and you're you you, know, you will need legumes and nuts if you, if you're if you're not eating animal foods you will need legumes and nuts in your diet to meet your protein needs. So please do not remove them if you prefer that that way of eating. But for everyone else there really is no good argument for including grains and legumes in the diet. So if I'm making a smoothie, which I do every day and many of our listeners do, and I'm putting in our grass-fed whey and putting in an avocado, but then I think about vegetables and fruits. What should I not, what should I put in? If, if I want to get a vegetable in my smoothie and I want to get a fruit in my smoothie, what should we put in? What should we absolutely not put in there if we want to get the maximum benefit? Please do not put flax seeds in your smoothie. <laughs> this is the number one thing I can warn people against who are smoothie lovers. Flax seeds contain, uh, when flax seeds are damaged by, by blending or chewing, uh, they release tiny quantities of cyanide, which is a, a neurotoxin. It, it poisons your mitochondria and interferes with your mitochondria's ability to generate energy for the brain and the rest of the body. Please do not 
put flax seeds in your smoothie. There's no reason to include them and every reason to eliminate them. And again, we're looking for optimal brain health here. So that's what we're talking about. Please also do not make your smoothie uh, with sugar or fruit juice because that's going to give you a big glucose and insulin spike that's going to undo whatever benefits you're trying to get out of that smoothie. So please do not sweeten your smoothie with sugar or fruit juice. What you put in it beyond beyond that is really up to you in terms of what you enjoy, what fruits and vegetables you enjoy. And so I'm more, again, sort of emphasizing the benefits of subtraction than addition, if you're noticing. So uh, it's less about what you put in and what you don't than what you take out. But I'm thinking about the nutrient absorption piece. I don't want to put something in my smoothie. If I'm looking at that smoothie to optimize for nutrients, and this ladders up to, to brain health, like you want the right nutrients. Uh, I don't want to put something in there that's high in phytic acid because that's going to hurt my nutrient absorption. So peanuts, peanut butter off the table. I, what I want to get on are like, what are those, are there specific vegetables, fruits, or nuts that if we want to optimize for nutrient absorption, we should probably, I'm not saying take it out of your diet. I'm saying you probably shouldn't put it in your smoothie. Like if you want a handful of nuts, maybe you should have it in the mid afternoon, but don't put it in your smoothie. So what are those? Because either Vegetable, fruits, and nuts and seeds. The foods that are high that that are rich in phytic acid are the grains, beans, nuts, and seeds. So if you're trying to maximize your mineral absorption of magnesium, zinc, iron, calcium from your smoothie, you really want to keep all the nuts and seeds and grains and legumes out of the smoothie. Most people aren't putting grains and legumes in their smoothies, but some people are putting nuts and seeds in there. So I would definitely if phytic acid is your concern, I would I would not put those in the smoothie. So then it would make the case for if you're you like a milk based smoothie, either having a whole milk or an oat milk that's clean with no sugar instead of an almond milk or a cashew milk. Well, yeah. So oats are also a grain. And so we run into that same issue. And also most oat milk, and please be careful about this, most oat milk contains vegetable oil as well. So look for ones that do not contain vegetable oil. Malk is the Malk is a fantastic brand where it's just the ingredients mm-hmm. like oats and Himalayan sea salt. And I think that's about, that's it. Yes, exactly. So if, if you're using grain milks or uh, other types of uh, milk substitutes, it sounds like your listeners probably already know this. No sugar, no vegetable oil in those in those milks, please. Got it. Okay. Well, that that's helpful. I th- I think this is important because food. I think most people food combine, and if most most people are looking to optimize, like myself, you don't want to. We're not we're not demonizing beans or legumes specifically, but you maybe shouldn't combine it with a rich source of iron if you're concerned about iron deficiency or anemia. You should probably have the beans as a snack. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. So I'm curious to close, tell me about like, what's a day in the life for you in terms of what you eat for brain health? Can you walk us through like your breakfast, lunch, dinner, and and snacks? Let's close there. Keep in mind, this is my diet that I choose for myself. And this is not, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not advocating that everybody eat exactly the way I do. And I have my own food sensitivities and issues and my own metabolic (laughs) issues to deal with. So this is not so it's just me. So I eat, uh, a, my diet is almost entirely animal foods, non-dairy animal foods. So, uh, and I do eat a few plant foods, um, but the ones that happen to agree with me, 
um, but I mostly eat animal foods. Uh, so uh, this includes, you know, uh, some of my favorite foods, duck, shellfish, seafood, steak, chicken, turkey. And I do eat some plant foods, you know, things like cucumbers and olives and lettuce and avocados. And I eat certain plant foods that agree with me. I don't eat any nuts or seeds or grains or legumes or dairy products, or even unfortunately, I'm sensitive to eggs or I would include those because they're quite good for you, but I don't tolerate them. Is there a specific type of lettuce, romaine, butter? Let's go deep. Tell me your preferred lettuce. Any lettuce that's that's a true lettuce as opposed to a cruciferous green. Uh, so uh, the cruciferous greens I don't I don't uh, tolerate well, and so the you know things like you know baby kale or um, you know uh, radicchio those kinds of things those kind of arugula I don't do well with those but I do uh, any any true lettuce will do. Got it. I love arugula. Oh yeah, no, my partner does too. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. Other than everyone, pick up the book. I'll hold it up. Change your diet. Change your mind. Anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on or, or leave our audience with any words of wisdom to close? You know, I really, for anyone who's listening who has a mental health issue of any kind, whether it's major or minor, you know, whether it's you know, kind of an everyday issue like irritability or anxiety, you know, worry, stress, difficulty sleeping, concentration problems, all the way to people who, uh, with serious mental illness. I just want everybody to know that that there's so much you can do to improve your mental health that you may not have tried yet. And there are really three principles that I lay out in the book, nourish, pr protect, and energize. Your brain needs all the nutrients. So the book lays out which foods are best at delivering those nutrients. The book tells you, you know, which foods to avoid to protect your brain from damage. And the third is how to energize your brain for a lifetime, keep that energy flow going. And that's all about controlling your glucose and insulin levels. Whether you eat plants or animals doesn't matter. The, you want to focus on your glucose and insulin levels, get those into a healthy range. If you do those three things, uh, you will really be uh, optimizing uh, your, your brain nutrition and it just takes a few weeks to feel better. So uh, I hope people will, will will try some of these approaches. Well, it's a fantastic resource for anyone interested in a nutri nutrition-based lifestyle intervention. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Georgia. Thank you so much for, for reading it and for sharing it with your listeners. I'm, I'm really happy to have been here. Thank you. 